When Nick said shingles, everybody groaned. So you can imagine how Phil is feeling. Uh, it's actually shingles of the eye, or close to the eye, so we should be in prayer for him. Uh, he emailed me, and, uh, and he said, are you available? And, it, and of all times of the year, uh, nobody ever asks a guest preacher to come for Easter Sunday, every pastor in their, I mean, this is what they live for. And... Uh, I mean, the Sunday after Easter, uh, usually we took vacations, uh, you know, but I'm just a little insight into pastoral theology. <laughs> but, but in uh, this particular Sunday, it's, it's, it's just, it's a special time. And so for me, the gift of being able to break the word, although I must say after the music, um, I just thought we could sing even more and have the choir sing again. So thank you so much for that. But I'm going to preach. I don't know, but I've always been fascinated by the Gospels and how they tell the story of Jesus. I mean, it seems like each of the Gospel writers peels back just a little bit of the story. And then they layer it into their own experience and they filter it through their eyes. Uh, there's, there's a certain kind of character to each of the Gospels, and I have always felt that that somehow affirms the whole kind of authenticity of the New Testament. Uh, there's, they're not the same, because none of our experiences of Jesus are the same. When Matthew writes of, of the resurrection, it's kind of a didactic kind of teaching kind of framework. It seems to lack emotion to it, but not Mark. Mark's a young Christian. He's a young follower of Jesus Christ. He's all excited about this birth. This, he doesn't even start with the birth. He gets right into the story of Jesus, and when he gets to it, he gets right to the resurrection, and he ends it with the women. Uh, I think he did it on purpose. But obviously, a century and a half later, if you look in your Bibles, some monk somewhere decided he didn't like the ending of Mark's gospel. And you'll see in the NIV, you'll see a little section that's added. It's kind of like you didn't like the end of the movie. Well, let me give you a better end. But I actually think Mark did it on purpose. He ends with the women as if to say, what are you going to do with this resurrection? Luke treats the resurrection rather a matter of fact. It's actually just a little section in his story. And then he spends all of his time after the resurrection. But John's story, John's story is of the resurrection is vivid and it's rich and it's full of fascinating detail. When Jesus appears, everything bursts out with meaning. But one of the most fascinating details in John that often gets missed is right at the very beginning. Everyone is busy running. Have you noticed that? It's almost as if the tempo of John's narrative gets picked up after a series of long, long monologues in the Gospel of John. 
in which Jesus bids farewell to his disciples. After this bloody crucifixion in which things move tragically slowly, Easter bursts upon us and everyone begins to run. And the story takes on this kind of urgent quality, a kind of all of a suddenness. Now I watched you this morning I didn't notice any of you out of breath from running. Matter of fact, it, it took a long time to get the people from the coffee and the hot cross buns out here. My guess is that none of you ran to church today, which is interesting, since according to John, there was a great deal of running involved with the resurrection. First in John chapter two, or I should say in verse two, Mary Magdalene came and when she saw the stone rolled away, the empty tomb, she starts running. We're not sure why. I don't think the resurrection idea had sunk in yet. It doesn't come probably till verse 11. But now, in this pre-dawn darkness, she begins running back to tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus' body is gone. Mark tells us, interestingly enough, that the women were told of the resurrection, but they ran away, interesting words, trembling and bewildered, confused. You would be too, wouldn't you? I mean, such nonsense, such unreasonableness, so irrational, you have to have an imagination to grasp the idea of the resurrection. But all the gospels agree that the women were the first to arrive at the tomb and Jesus' body is not there. Maybe this isn't good news. Oh, sure, to us who already know the story. It sounds like good news to us, but to the women, it's simply an empty tomb. And it simply meant that Jesus' body is gone. Mary Magdalene, in her grief, ran. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. Now someone had taken his body, so they ran. Has that ever happened to you? Something explodes in front of you and you just turn and you run? No thinking, just a kind of survival instinct? Has that ever happened to you? I was sitting with a group of friends a year ago, years ago at a fireworks display. And all of a sudden, a bucket of fireworks about maybe 10 yards away from us all of a sudden, they exploded. And all I remember was our response. We just jumped up and ran. It's kind of like instinct. All of a sudden, we turned and ran. One of my friends just kept running. We had to call him back. It's okay, it's safe here. And that's what Mary does here. Remember, Mark says that she's trembling and bewildered. This is not a knowing. It's an instinctual kind of running. 
It's a, I better go tell the others kind of running. Maybe they'll know what to do kind of running. And as she runs, she meets the two of the disciples, Peter and John, and when, they, and she, when she tells them what she saw or what she didn't see, then you know what they do? They run. She runs off, they run toward the tomb. She ran from the empty tomb, they run toward it. And John says they didn't just run together toward the tomb. John says they raced each other against one another toward the tomb. They get in some kind of, and you've got to capture this in John, they get into some kind of comical race that's going on. Rushing. Now one ahead of the other then one falling back, and one gaining. Do you ever wonder when you read that passage, why did they race? Why did they race against each other? What were they thinking? Mary seems to see the empty tomb as a tragedy. Not only that they had killed Jesus, but they had stolen his body now. But John and Peter Maybe they're running toward it to see the insult of this that has happened to them. Or maybe they're running as rivals. You have to capture it when you read the Gospel of John, but it's there. John has a way of portraying Peter in his Gospel. Peter, who is the leader of the disciples, is the one with a ready word on most occasions. Usually it's the wrong word first. Peter is the one who always has the bravado. Peter is the one that denied Jesus. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll also note that John likes you to know that he was the one that Jesus loved the most. You see it all through that gospel. He was the beloved disciple. And John likes to remind you about that in his gospel. He was the one closest to the heart of Jesus. Maybe they ran to see which one of them, Peter the leader, or John the beloved, would arrive first. I wonder. Two disciples run. If they knew that something which told them that this strange event, this empty tomb, did they have any inclination of understanding what it might be like? Someone says to you, come and look at this. And we come. And we run toward it exactly why we don't know, but we run toward it because someone says, come and see it. Perhaps that's like you this Easter. You've come here, but if I were to ask you, why did you come? Perhaps for some of you, you don't know why you're come. You have no clear picture of what you think you'll see or you'll experience, but you've come. 
I think John and Peter, these two sprinting disciples, come just like that. They don't know. They're running towards something new. They know that much, something strange. Instinctively, they know that this means that their world has been changed forever. And John tells you in verse four that he got there first. That seems important to him. Almost human, almost childlike. You and I raced but I beat you. But then it says, he went to the empty tomb after Peter. That's interesting. He beats him there, but is he too afraid to go in? I mean, it's still dark. I don't want to go in there in that place of death. I might wind up dead myself. Let's let Peter try it out first. And so it's Peter who goes in first in verses six and seven. But when he does go in, when John finally does go in in verse eight, it says he saw and he believed. Isn't that interesting? The beloved disciple The beloved disciple is the first to believe at Easter. I think that John wanted to tell us that the disciple got there first, the beloved disciple, scared and timid, but as he entered, something happened to him. That's what's so fascinating about John's story. What this story of John does is it gives us a different character's all through the story, who deal with belief in different ways. And it's just as if he's giving us a window with all of these experiences so that in all the ways that we come to believe in the Easter resurrection, we can find a place. That seems to be his intention in verse 31. These are the stories that are written that you may believe, he says, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. John looks in and he sees the empty tomb. And because of that relationship, that special relationship that he had with Jesus, he believes without seeing and hearing Jesus. He doesn't see the risen Jesus. Mary will not believe until she stands face to face with Jesus in the latter part of the story. Thomas will need to touch and to feel the wounds before he can believe. Peter doesn't get it fully at all. Probably until the 21st chapter when finally forgiveness floods over his life and Jesus says, Feed my sheep. But the implications of this story are important. Now you can see why John probably went into all the detail about this foot race. The very first believer in the resurrection, the first to believe in the triumph of God, came there by the same path that you and I do, by not seeing the risen Christ. The risen Christ 
my guess, hasn't personally appeared to you in a garden. He hasn't called you by name audibly, though for some he has. Almost no one here, I suspect, has touched the wounds and believed. We have believed on the basis of the word and the words. He's not here. He's not here. Jesus said it later, blessed are those who have not seen, which means most of us here, and yet have come to believe. So how did the beloved disciple come to faith on this first Easter? This beloved disciple who knew Jesus so well, so when he saw the empty tomb, he did not think about abandonment, he didn't think about defeat, he didn't think about death, but he thought about freedom and victory and life. In a moment, he sensed that Jesus had taken their relationship to a new, unexpected, and more wonderful area. Some of you, if you've taken education or psychology, will know the name Eric Erickson. He said that a child develops trust in the first six months of their life. The infant learns that when he cries out momentarily, a voice will be heard saying, they're there, what's wrong, or something like that. Or a loving face will soon appear and the infant learns thereby that the parents care that the world is trustworthy and all of those things. And eventually the infant will tolerate long absences from the parent. The infant doesn't need the parent's physical presence anymore, clearly in sight, because they've learned that even though the parent's not right there in their view, the parent's nearby and the parent will come. It's called trust. The beloved disciple did not have to have proof, as so many of us need, or proof as we would call proof. He had no legal certification of the resurrection, but he had his relationship with Jesus, and that's why he believed. When I was pastoring a number of years ago, I remembered hearing a conversation that went on after an Easter service in the parking lot. They were talking about the service, you know, pastors always want to know how they felt about the service. <coughs> they didn't see me. I was shaking hands at the door, but as I often do, was eavesdropping of the conversations. And I heard someone say, how'd you like the sermon? I heard one of them ask. It was okay, she said. But I don't come to Easter for the sermon. The other person asked, well, what do you come for? I come for the music. 
It, more, it makes more sense at Easter, this woman responded. Easter strikes me as something not to be argued about, not to be reasoned out, not to be demonstrated. And then she said this, I've never forgotten it. Easter is something to be experienced, enjoyed, wondered at. I agree, as difficult as that is for me, at Easter, as a preacher. I often tell people that the opposite of hope is not hopelessness. It's actually a lack of imagination. If one in the midst of what seemingly is the loss of hope has no imagination that things can be different, then they will find it very, very difficult to imagine a better way. A world that can change. A people that can be made different. Or a life that can be turned upside down. A number of years ago, Bishop John Spong, the liberal Anglican bishop, was in a debate with William Williman, the dean of the chapel at Duke. And they were focusing on the resurrection, and in frustration with Williman's argument about the resurrection, he believes in it, he finally said, Bishop Spong said, how can I tell my daughter, who has a PhD in physics, to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Williman, with all his wry humor, replied, well, I guess we'd have to meet your daughter and get to know her. I mean, does she have any imagination? Has she ever been outside of New Jersey? Does she get around? Or does she just live in her neat little world? Does she like surprises? Or does she just want everything to be stale and neat and clean? Because if any of this is true, she won't allow anything different to interrupt her life. And that's the thing that you and I face this Easter. The cross is not enough. I have a friend who's written a book about that. It became very controversial. But he wants to say in the book that it is actually the resurrection that calls us to a different way of life. If you have enough imagination and if you have enough belief about the resurrection, then you might have the imagination to be a resurrection people. You might believe and imagine that people can change. You actually might believe and can imagine that social, political things that seem absolutely hopeless can be turned upside down. And if you have the imagination, then you just might change the way you live. Julia Lee is 
Some of you know, I know. She's one of my Facebook friends. She's a rather raw blo- uh, writer. I love her. She's a Christian. And she wrote today this on her blog. My hope is his people that they might aspire to fail multiple times and try over and over again to represent his kingdom, to be a resurrection people. He is a risen church. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. With the hope of the resurrection, we stand and we leave this place knowing that you are not here, but you have gone out into the world and you have called us to be with you. Thank you. Amen.